Dear Lord, just thank you for this day that we can just come and study your word. Just thank you for the day that we can uh, just praise you, Lord, as we talked about this morning as our shepherd and uh, the one who really guides us through everything in life. And Lord, I pray that you would really open up this passage to us and uh, just reveal to us what it is you would have us learn. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. We are back today uh, continuing in the study of Matthew. We've reached now Matthew chapter 14, and we'll be looking at uh, the miraculous uh, encounter that took place between Jesus and his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember from two weeks ago, Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000 with nothing more than five loaves of bread and, and two fish. And incredibly, at the end of it, there was more than 12 baskets of leftovers. It was an unmistakable miracle that had just taken place before their very eyes. In John 6, it tells us that after this happened, that when they had seen the signs that Jesus did, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. And so the people had gotten their fill of bread, they got their fill of fish, and they saw the power that Jesus displayed through it, and the reaction to Jesus' miracles was, great, this is the one who is going to overthrow Rome, he's going to set up his kingdom, he's going to free us from their control over us, let us make him our king. These people, they were looking for an earthly king, they thought Jesus was here to establish his throne on earth at that time. They thought that he was on an earthly mission with an earthly goal. He thought, though they thought that he was going to save them from their oppression. They weren't really, though, looking for Jesus to be their savior. They just wanted someone to save them from their current political situation. They weren't looking to be saved from their sins, nor did they even realize they had a need for a savior. They weren't ready to confess him as Lord over their lives or even even acknowledge him as the Son of God. Their faith was not genuine. And they just simply liked the idea of what Jesus could do for them, whether that was filling their stomachs with food or overthrowing the government they didn't like. And so now we reach today's passage where we pick up in Matthew chapter 14, and it will be uh, verses 22 through 36. So Matthew 14, verses 22 through 36 reads, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, 
And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out to all the surrounding regions, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him, they were made perfectly well. Now, this passage is pretty well known to most of us. And even though it's very common, a passage to read through and very well known, uh, there is so much to take away from it. And uh, at first glance, it looks very simple, but there's a lot of profound takeaways uh, in this passage. As we're reading, the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee in a literal storm. The Sea of Galilee, as you're well aware of, I'm sure, is known to have these sudden and oftentimes violent and even dangerous uh, storms that at times could even be fatal, depending on how uh, severe the storm was. And there's typically would just be fishermen or those who are traveling would know ahead of time that this is a high potential for a dangerous situation for us. And the disciples, as we know, they were primarily uh, fishermen by trade, and so they were very familiar with this uh, scenario. They were very familiar with the sea. And yet we read that they're out here on the sea again, and there were strong winds. There were waves crashing violently against that boat. And the winds and the waves that we read here in this passage speak of the storms of life, the the hardships and the trials that we go through in life. And as we read, uh, although there's so many applications to draw, I've condensed it down to the seven lessons that the storms of life teach us. So the first lesson that we can learn from the storms of life is that oftentimes the storms of life come in the midst of obedience to Jesus. Let me ask you, where or were the disciples in the will of God when they were out at sea? I don't think it could be any more clear. Jesus literally commanded them to get into a boat and tells them to cross the sea to the other side. Clearly, they're in the will of God. And Jesus is God, and being that he is God, he knew that there would be a storm that would ultimately arise while the disciples were out at sea. He wasn't surprised by the storm coming. He knew it was going to be there before it even happened. We talked today about Job. Think about him. He was a righteous man, obedient to God. He endured some of the most difficult trials ever known to man. And yet he was at the center of God's will. He was, at the time that the trials came, he was in the will of God. And so even in obedience and even in uh, living a righteous life, you may go through storms and trials in your life. But the amazing thing is, is that despite knowing that trials and hardships would come to the disciples on the sea, Jesus was going to use this in the life, to, in the life of his disciples to grow their faith which is something that we'll we'll touch on a little bit later, but he's going to use it as a learning opportunity for them. The second lesson that we learn is that even in the midst of a storm, when it seems like Jesus is nowhere to be seen, he is still in control and very aware of our circumstances. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone tell me or, or someone else has thought out loud saying, where was God when this or that happened? Where was God when... That trial happened in my life. Where was God when my grandmother died? Where was God when 9-11 happened? Where was God when the pandemic broke out? Where was God? And as difficult as it may be to, ask, to answer these questions, and as difficult as the circumstances at the time seem, God was and is always there. He is right there, and he's always in control. He's controlling exactly how far the waves in this situation go. 
He controls exactly how many times a planet will orbit the moon. He controls the hearts of leaders in this world. He controls nature itself. He controls the rain and the sunshine. He controls every aspect of you, your heartbeat, your breasts, the molecules and the cells in your body. He controls every little thing about you. And also, when situations in our life arise, we wonder, where is God? But we must remind ourselves that God is in control over all things in life, including the trials that we face. Nothing has escaped his sight. Nothing's caught him off guard. There's no trial that's been given to you that has not been first filtered through by God and made sure that you would have the strength to endure it and to bear it. And the interesting thing about the situation is that the disciples are now in the middle of the sea, several miles away from shore, struggling against the winds and the waves. And as I said, these are experienced fishermen. They know their ability. They know their, uh, their propensity of how, how far they can go away from shore. They know what they can handle at sea. They know how to navigate the sea, and yet they are terrified. They are fearful that we are going to die here out sea. And, you know, that from their vantage point, they knew that if we're left alone, we are not going to make it back to shore. And so they must have wondered to themselves, where is Jesus? Where did he go? Why is he not with us? Does he even know that we're struggling here? Well, where was Jesus? He had gone to the mountain to pray, and the Bible doesn't tell us what he prayed for exactly, but it's very likely that he would have been making intercession to his father for his disciples, for their faith to be strengthened, for their spiritual growth, and for their effectiveness for the work of God, both while he's on the earth in his ministry and after he goes home uh, to heaven. And the amazing uh, thing is that God places such value on prayer that interceding for his disciples was a priority for him. In a time where Jesus could be doing so many different things, he decides to spend time alone in prayer with his father. To Jesus, that was the most important thing in that moment to do. And his decision to spend time in prayer shows us the importance that Jesus places on prayer with the Father. And we know from other parts of Scripture, Jesus oftentimes went, to the, went alone and spoke with his Father in prayer. And he's setting an example for us to remind us that in our time of need, we can also pray to the Father. We can pray to the Father and ask for help, for guidance, for direction, and for strength to endure the trials that we face. It's a reminder to us also that Jesus, even today, continues and will continually make intercession on our behalf. What an amazing truth to remember in some of the darkest times of our lives. So let's just kind of look at the scene for a second. What's happening? Jesus has gone to a mountain to pray to his father. Disciples are in the middle of the sea, struggling against the winds and the waves, wondering where Jesus is. And yet we know from Mark's encounter of this very event that Jesus looked from the mountain and it says that he saw them straining at rowing, which tells us that Jesus sees all that we go through. Jesus was fully aware of his disciples' hardships. He was fully aware of their trials out at sea. He knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what they were going through. It's interesting because in many ways, this picture of what we're looking at as the scene foreshadows a time where Jesus is about to leave this earth. He's about to ascend to heaven. It says that Jesus goes to a mountain, and we know that shortly after his resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven. We know the disciples are in the middle of the sea, 
And the C is typically representative of the Gentile nation. And this idea is that disciples are going to be left alone once Jesus ascends to heaven in a predominantly Gentile world where they will spread the good news of the gospel. And yet, there is going to be perilous times. There is going to be the winds and the waves. There are going to be trials and hardships for them. And as we know, it comes about later on in their lives. Many of the disciples experienced severe hardships, persecution. Some even got martyred for their faith. And yet, in the midst of all that, the Lord is still in heaven in control, aware of the situation on earth, and guiding them along in their life. And as believers today, we are also on this earth. <laughs> there are storms and trials that come our ways. And sometimes we can feel like we're all alone. And sometimes we become fearful of our situations. And sometimes all we can see and hear are the crashing waves and the howling winds from the storm. And yet the story paints a, a beautiful picture to remind us that Jesus is fully aware and fully in control of our circumstances. The third thing that we can learn from the storms of life is that Jesus comes to us at just the right time. Jesus comes to us at just the right time. When the situation is most helpless, when we are most weary, when we reach the point of desperation, that is when Jesus comes to our aid. It says in verse 25, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of watches. I wasn't, so I looked it up, and it, it comes from a military Roman, uh, mil Roman military term where they would literally divide the night into four separate watches. The first watch would be 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The second watch would be 9 p.m. to midnight. The third being midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch being 3 a.m. to 6 p.m. And if the disciples had left the feeding of the 5,000, say around 8 o'clock, they would have been out at sea now for roughly eight or more hours. They would be exhausted. They would be fatigued. They are in the middle of the sea, miles away, and now there is a storm. The winds are raging. The, the waves are crashing against the boat. And, you know, as fishermen, they would have tried all the tricks they knew to get themselves back to shore, to get themselves out of the storm. And yet, no matter what they tried, nothing was working. They are struggling to keep this boat afloat. Mark says that they were straining from rowing, for the winds were against them. And so at this point, they would be physically exhausted. They have done all they can humanly do to get through this storm, and nothing was getting them any closer to the shore. And to make matters worse, Jesus was not there with them physically. They knew in previous storms that if Jesus was there, they had hope. He had calmed the whims and the waves before, but that time he was in the boat. This time he's not there. And so where is Jesus? He's on the mountain praying, yet fully, fully aware of their circumstances, but he's not there with them physically, and so they're filled with fear. They're filled with worry, and they're desperate for help because they know that without him, death is imminent. And we have to remember again, this is the fourth watch of the night between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's dark. It's a time where you can barely see what's in front of you. It's a time where you can't tell how close you are to shore. And it would be frightening for anyone to be out, you know, on the Sea of Galilee, let alone in a storm, and let alone in the middle of the night. It would be frightening for them. There's a um, common saying that I feel like really pertains to the disciple situation. 
And the saying goes, the darkest hour is just before dawn. The darkest hour is just before dawn. And the application for us and for the disciples is that when all is darkness around us, when trials are just too much for us, when we're at the point of desperation and crying out for help, when we come to the point where we admit there is nothing we can do in our own physical ability to get through this, that is when Jesus comes. That is when he makes his entrance into our life. Jesus tends to make his entrance around the fourth watch of the night. And I believe God allows us to experience a duration of difficulty, a duration of hardship purposefully, so that we come to the end of ourselves. So that when we get through a storm in life, we cannot attribute it to ourselves or to our own strength or some courage that we mustered up. But no, we have to look back and say, clearly the Lord brought me through that because without him, I would be a goner. Without him, I would not have made it this far in life. And uh, all in all, if you look through it, back on your life or through the disciples' lives, it just shows God's faithfulness towards them when they needed him most. And the takeaway from Jesus walking on the sea to the disciples is simple, but yet so profound. You know, even, even a child can understand it, that when trials come your way, when life is difficult, I am here with you. So basic. And yet, I have to be reminded of this so often in my own life, because I forget. Because in moments of difficulty, in moments of hardship in life, I become fearful. I forget these basic concepts. When trials come, I am here with you. Well, the disciples at this point, they're fearful. They're in the middle of the storm. They hadn't if they hadn't pushed the panic button, they, their finger's on the trigger right now. And it says in verse 26 through 27, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Which brings us to our fourth lesson. Is that in the storms of life, we can look to the promises of God that he calms and removes our fears from us. Knowing that God is right there with us brings us peace. It brings us joy during trials to know that we're not alone in this. Again, think about the scene. You are two, or you're three to four miles from shore and you see suddenly this, this figure appear and they're not in any flotation device, they're not in any boat. They're literally walking on the water. And the disciples, out of fear, just think it's a ghost. That's the first thing they, they imagine this to be. But Jesus quickly removes their fears by saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Do you know what the most repeated command in the Bible is? It's not do not murder, it's, do not, it's not do not lie, it's not do not steal. It's actually this command right here. This very command, do not be afraid. Uh, the phrase is used anywhere from 70 to 100 times throughout the Bible in different forms and different ways, but the same purpose is being accomplished. Do not be afraid. Why would God repeat himself so many times in the Bible if he had already done it before? Why does he have to keep that repetition? And I think it's because we need that to remind us that when things in life are out of our control, when naturally we want to be fearful, and when we naturally want to worry, we want to be terrified, that's when we realize that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be fearful or anxious about these things. Why not? 
Because it is I. Because I am here with you. That's the reality of it. Let me ask you a question. I really want you to think through this one. Because I had to think through this myself. What causes you and I to be fearful? What causes you to be anxious? What causes you to be troubled in your life today? What are the winds and the waves in your life? Is it a health situation? Is it a financial difficulty that you're experiencing? Is it uncertainty about your future? Or about the year? Or about the next few years? Is it a loss of a loved one? Or is it an uh, unexpected diagnosis that was suddenly discovered? What are the winds and the waves in your life? Whatever they may be, you don't have to be afraid of them because Jesus is with you even in the darkest times. The fifth lesson that we learn is that trials and storms of life that come our ways are under the feet of Jesus. When we typically describe something as under the feet of someone, we mean that those things are under the person's control. They're under their dominion. The same is very true of the Lord. Those things that terrify us, those things that cause us panic, those things that stir up fear in our minds, those very things are under his control and under his dominion. Those things are subject to him. He has power over them. Anything that comes to mind or anything that is currently troubling your mind are under the feet of Jesus. He has power over the winds and the waves that so deeply trouble you. You don't have to fear those things, but rather you can find peace in knowing that Jesus is fully in control over them. And not only that, but we cannot glance over the fact that Jesus has just literally walked on water. And that in and of itself is nothing short of a miracle. Because we as humans are subject to the laws of gravity and buoyancy, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of other physical properties and natural laws that I'm forgetting. But either way, we are subject to those natural laws. And the point is that water and the, the, the forces associated with it are more powerful than us. I was out in Hawaii uh, last November, and it was during a time where the north shore of Oahu was having the swells, and that was a time where the surfers would come out and the waves, they said, would be as big as 40 to 50 feet high. And uh, I was just standing on the shore. They told, you know, no, no travelers or no visitors could go and go out to sea because it was just so dangerous. But just standing on shore, hundreds of feet away, you could just hear the roaring waves, the crashing, just how loud the echoes were when it hit the shore. And um, yeah, I mean, even, even the surfers there, they can barely control where their board goes on that, on that wave. But they can't control where it lands or where it falls. They don't know how strong the winds will be and how strong the waves will be when they get there. They have no control over it. They can't slow the waves down. They can't calm them down, let alone walk on them. Which makes it all the more incredible that Jesus physically walked on the very water that was raging so fiercely. And that's incredible because this is a physical impossibility apart from him being God. I do enjoy watching magic shows, and there have been many magicians, many magicians who have done their best attempt to simulate or pretend that they are walking on water. But when you really look at it and you find out the tricks of how they do it, you find out if they remove the clear glass box underneath the water, they wouldn't be able to do that trick as well as they would before. 
And so even a magician would have to tell you the truth that they cannot walk on water. No human can physically walk on water apart from God. And so, <clears throat> since no one can walk on water, and since he is able to walk on water, which demonstrates his power and his control over it, then who else can we conclude that Jesus is except the very Son of God? Through this miracle, it is unmistakable that Jesus is showing us that indeed I am God. And there is no other logical conclusion. In fact, the disciples later acknowledge this very fact in verse 33 where they say, truly you are the Son of God. So now we have Jesus walking on water to the middle of the sea, to this boat, and he commands the disciples, do not be afraid, it is I. And upon hearing the voice of Jesus, the story continues in verses 28 through 33, where Jesus, uh, where Peter, sorry, enthusiastically replies to Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus commands Peter, come. And so Peter boldly steps out of the boat and does what no other human has done before. He begins walking on water just as Jesus was doing. And everything was going well. He was literally walking on the water towards Jesus. Walking on the surface of the water. Again, another miracle of Jesus allowing someone to do something that would otherwise be impossible to do if he didn't have control over those waters. And Peter's eyes, they were fixed on Jesus, at least initially. But what changed? What happened next? And this next phrase is so telling to me. It says, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous. It's so telling because Peter was walking by faith on the water, and then he turned his eyes off Jesus. And he looked on to the winds that were stirring and the waves that were crashing. And it says that he was afraid. And he says he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And now a lot of commentators are really hard on Peter. But aren't we so often like Peter? Things are going well. We have our eyes fixed on the Lord. And then something happens in life. And we take our eyes off of him. And we start looking at our trials. We start looking at our hardships and start looking at the things that are going wrong. And when we do this, we begin to sink. We begin so much, we begin to be so much worse off than if we had just fixed our eyes on Jesus and stayed there. Which brings me to the sixth point of the things that we learn in the storms is that Jesus is teaching us that, the, that faith allows us to walk through the storms of life, which would otherwise be impossible to do on our own. Jesus is teaching us that faith allows us to walk through the storms of life, which would otherwise be impossible to do on our own. Because when we begin to doubt, when we begin to fear the trials, when we worry, when we are anxious and it begins to consume us, that's when we begin to sink. Let me ask you a question. What was Peter's biggest problem in this situation? Was it that the waves were too big? Was it that the winds were too powerful? No. Peter's greatest problem was a lack of faith, which is why he doubted. And though it was a big step to get out of the boat and walk on that sea, Peter's doubts caused him to have little faith in the very one who just called him to come out to that sea. Spurgeon once said, Our doubts are unreasonable. Why did you doubt? If there was reason for little faith, there is evidently reason for great confidence. If it be right to trust Jesus at all, why not trust him altogether? 
You do believe, and if you believe, why doubt? If faith, why little faith? If you doubt, why believe? And if you believe, why doubt? You see, doubt is the enemy to a faith-driven life. Faith, on the other hand, allows you to walk on the stormy trials of life unharmed. Faith allows us to follow Jesus wherever he calls us to go. Faith is focused on the one who called us rather than the circumstances surrounding the calling. And the reason we have faith is because our faith is in someone who is unchanging, someone who is all-knowing, someone who is all-powerful. Jesus is the object of our faith. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that we are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's impossible to live the Christian life effectively without having our eyes fixed on Jesus. Then and only then can we experience a supernatural life that he has called us to live. And if we doubt and if we take our eyes off of Jesus, if we begin looking at our circumstances, that's when we'll begin to sink. And so Peter, he began sinking. And now he's desperate for help and he knows that the only one who can save him is Jesus. And so he cries out, Lord, save me. And Peter realizes, even in this hopeless circumstance, that without Jesus, he's going to drown. And the Lord, in his goodness, reaches out immediately and reaches out and grabs Peter. And it says that he got them back into the boat, and when they are back in the boat, the wind ceased. Again, another miracle that Jesus, again, calmed the winds and the wave. Jesus completely stopped them from continuing on. And the disciples recognize that this is clearly none other than God himself. And it says in verse 33, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And there was a worship session on that boat with Jesus at that time. Because of all that he had done and because of who he is. Which brings me to my seventh and final point that we learn on the storms of life. Is that the storms and the trials of life remind us and help us to realize the character of God, which in turn results in worship. The storms of life and the trials that we experience help us to realize the character of God and in turn leads us to worship. The storm and the hardship of life should cause us to reflect upon the promises of God, which is why I believe God's given us so many promises to look back to. When your heart begins to be troubled by hardships, go back to God's promises in his word. He's left more than I have time to go over this morning for you to be comforted, for you to be reminded of who he is. We talked about one this morning, actually, uh, Psalm 23.4, a perfect example of a promise God has given to us. It says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and I'm sure the disciples at this point felt like they were going through the valley of the shadow of death, And yet, what should their response be? I will fear no evil. Why not? Why should I not fear? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's a promise from God that he is always with you in good times and even when life seems like it's at its darkest point. He again tells us elsewhere to cast all your care upon him. Why? For he cares for you. All the things that I'm concerned about, all the things that are troubling me, I can bring before the Almighty God. And not only does he just hear my prayers, he is deeply and intimately concerned about each and every one of my troubles. 
Another promise we read is in uh, Hebrews 13.5. It says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord God will never abandon you. He will never leave you on your own. He'll never forsake you. He'll never forget about you and your circumstances. What a sense of relief and peace that should bring us. That though I'm going through some difficult times, that though life might seem bleak at times, the one who created me is with me every single step of the way. And when I have my mind fixed on his promises, how quickly I realize that there is nothing to fear at all. Because Jesus is with me every step of the way. I realize that no matter what happens in life, no matter what trial comes my way, I can look back to his promises and realize he is still good. He is still faithful. He is still loving. He is still merciful. He is still unchanging. He is still on the throne and in control and will help me and be my guide through all my trials. And now from a worldly perspective, this makes no sense. In trials, this is, people, this is when people panic. This is when people are filled with anxiety. This is when people are filled with fear. Most people groan at the idea of a trial. But as believers, we can have the complete opposite response. That in trials, we can be filled with joy and actually praise God through a storm. James 1 verses 2 and 3 makes it so clear. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That is so contrary to how we naturally would think. That we can actually be thankful for trials in life. Thankful in storms that come because God is using them to produce in us Christ-likeness. We may not understand at the time why God has allowed this trial or the purpose behind what he's doing, but we know for a fact that God has allowed this trial for a reason. And that ultimately, though we may never know for years until years later, or even maybe never in this lifetime, but we know that God is using this for a purpose and we must be willing to count it all joy when we go through those trying times. We are called to be glad and to realize that God is using this to grow your faith and to mature you as a believer. This chapter then closes with three final verses, verses 34 through 36, and it reads, And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. I firmly believe that these verses are just an extension of the things that we've already been talking about. If you remember several months ago, I talked about a woman who had a chronic bleed for 12 years, and how she had believed by faith that if she just touched Jesus' garment, just the hem of it, that she would be made well. And sure enough, she touches Jesus' garment, and the bleeding stops completely. She is made well for the first time in 12 years. And it's not because she believed that the garment had some mystical power, but rather she believed that Jesus, the one wearing the garment, was all-powerful and could heal her. She then demonstrates her faith by reaching out and touching the garment and believing that simple touch would be enough for her to be healed. And following her healing, the word had now spread to the surrounding regions, and now they're bringing all the sick to Jesus. And the people just had simple faith, believing 
that if they just touched his garment, Jesus too would heal them. And it's said uh, by many people that the doctors and the medical staff uh, had an early vacation that year and they had to go on probably a, a long break because they had no work to do. Jesus had healed all those who were sick. Jesus had healed all those who were brought to him. And this, the point of this portion of scripture is trying to make is that Jesus is the object of our faith. Whether it be the instance of Peter walking on the water or whether it was the, the sick people being brought to Jesus, believing that he had the ability to heal them. The point of the whole section is that whether we go through storms of life or whether we're walking on water or being healed, our faith in the one who is capable of helping us do that is what matters. Our faith in that one. And that one person is Jesus. He is the one who is able and capable of helping us in those times. And maybe right now in your life, you don't have any trials you're going through. But one day, I can almost guarantee you that you will. And it's my prayer that you would use the lessons of the storms of life that Jesus has taught us this morning. And that would be a reminder, it would be a reminder to you when you go through storms of life, when you go through trials, that you would reflect upon the truths of his word, that you reflect upon what he's told us this morning. And I pray that these would prepare you for that time when you do experience a trial. And maybe right now you're going through some of the most severe trials of your life. And it's my prayer that this year you would remember the lessons that he taught us, realizing that God is fully aware of your situation. God is in control. God is with you every step of the way and that there is nothing to fear and no reason to doubt. And that God is using this trial to grow and strengthen your faith so that you would become more and more Christ-like. And through it all, I hope that we could even have the proper attitude to look towards trials and even praise God through the storms of life, through the trials of life, that we would bring him praise, even in our most difficult times. And we would watch and look, and as we go through storms and trials, when we get to the end of it, realizing that God was faithful. God was there with me the whole time, every step of the way. Without God, I would not have made it through that trial. And we could use it to encourage other believers, to remind them of the truths of God's word, of how he helped me every step of the way. I just pray that as we look through this year, that we would just trust the Lord every step of the way. Let's just pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you for just so much application that we can take from it, Lord. We realize that, Lord, we will go through trials and we will go through hardships in life, but, Lord, we can always fix our eyes upon you. And by faith, Lord, we can walk through the difficult, most difficult times there is. Lord, we're just thankful, Lord, for your truth, that you are always with us and always in control of our storms. I just pray, Lord, that this year would be a year where we fix our eyes upon you and trust you every step of the way. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.